0: Welcome to Bringing Truth to Life. My name is Henry Clay, and we hope you enjoy this series of messages on getting to know God better. Last week, we began our series on growing and knowing Him. And we we talked about the great Presbyterian Westminster answer, what's the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And we talked about how that actually is more of a statement of the goal rather than the process. That's where we want to get to. Uh, as relates to God, to bring Him glory, and as relates to us, to enjoy doing it because that's what He would like. He has given us all things to enjoy, it says in 1 Timothy, and I believe the sixth chapter. But what does it take to glorify God, and how are you doing? One of the things we also realized last week, that one of the keys to glorifying God and enjoying Him forever is getting to know Him better. As David said, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that I will seek, that I will dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And Paul in Philippians said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And finally, we looked at how Moses, when he was in that precious time with God in Exodus 33, made that interesting request of God Show me, if I found favor in thy sight, show me thy ways that I may know thee and that I might find favor in thy sight. Sounds kind of like he's gone in a complete circle there, doesn't it? If I have found favor in thy sight, show me thy ways that I might know thee and might find favor in thy sight. But it's sort of a spiral up. We get to know the Lord. He grants us his favor. We get to know him better. And uh, then knowing him better, we also can be more pleasing to him as we walk according to that new knowledge. And we talked about how one of the ways we can get to know an invisible God, you can't see him, feel him, you can't hear him in the way we hear one another normally, smell him, taste him. Although it says, taste and see that the Lord is good, but it's meaning more in a figurative sense. So the question is, well, how do you get to know somebody like that? You certainly wouldn't have wanted a girlfriend like that. Intangible, invisible, I mean, you know, what good is that? So some people think, well, what good is a God like that? Well, that's just how God is, and yet he is more real than you you and I are. It's not because he's less real, he's more real. He's just outside of our normal sphere of existence. And so the question, how can we get to know this invisible God? And what Moses says is, he says, I think I figured it out, how we can get to know God better. You've never seen the wind, and yet you've gotten to know the wind. Because you've gotten to know the ways of the wind. The wind starts blowing, and if you're raking, you think, I might as well quit raking. Why? You know the ways of the wind, and if you rake, the wind's going to come along in gusts and blow it all back, so you wait to rake, because you've learned about the invisible wind by the visible effects of the wind. And so as we get to know the ways of God, we get to know God. And we talked about how you can either look at a bush, let's just say this is a bush, and you can look at the individual leaves on everything, or you can look at bushes lined up And you say, oh, okay, that's sort, that's sort of a hedge. Or you can go up in the air and look down at all of these hedges and realize, hey, that spells out something. It says, I love you in the hedges. Now, you wouldn't have seen that just looking at each individual bush. But as you get up and look at the whole thing, you realize, hey, it says something. And a lot of times we've looked at all of these bushes in the Bible. God did this, then he did this. And we see the hedge as far as, well, they came out of Egypt and then they were in the wilderness. We kind of line those things up. But another step further is to say, Lord, show me your ways. What are the things that manifest themselves in these instances? But it's really over and above all of it. And if I understand that, I'll understand you better. I'll have a better idea of what it is you're doing in my life. And we'll get along better. Now, it won't be so difficult, not understanding what you are doing, not understanding who you are, what your intentions are. And we ended up by looking at the book of Habakkuk, if you'd like to open up to Habakkuk. That's about two-thirds of the way through your Bible, close to the end, close to Matthew, but not quite to Matthew. Habakkuk, Zephaniah. And we looked at how the prophet had said, we're doing so badly. Our nation is falling to pieces morally. Do something, God. And God says, oh, I, I've already been doing something. I'm raising up the Babylonians. And uh, they're going to come in and wipe you out. We're going to fix this injustice once and for all. And, says, and the prophet says, well, that's not exactly what I had in mind. I just wanted you to make the bad men good. And he says, well, we've already tried that. we are going to. We got a bigger stick now. We found somebody even worse than you. And they're going to come finish the job isn't it interesting God starts with the smaller means of trying to get our attention and trying to first he'll just influence us by giving us the scripture or by if we won't read the scripture he'll bring someone in our life that say no that's not good if we won't listen to that he keeps getting a bigger stick you, you know? And you won't listen to that? He says, well, we'll try a bigger stick. I says, he says I, I can keep going, he says. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's wonderful to learn to respond at the, fir- at the beginning when he's just speaking to you and doesn't need to do something bigger to get your attention. Now, you've done the same thing with your children. It's not that you're trying to be mean. You're just trying to get results. You're trying to guide them in the good way. And first you say, well, well, honey, pick up your clothes. Well, the clothes are continuing to grow like rabbits on the floor. So now you raise your voice a little bit. You know, you've done this also with ones that you're trying to guide in the good way. It has nothing to do with being mean. It has to do with being a good leader and finding what will be effective in the life of that little one that you're trying to help. And God does the same. Now, by the end of Habakkuk, Habakkuk realizes... This, I thought we had problems, injustice and unrighteousness and bribes, but now there's this storm cloud brooding of God is sending this judgment on us, and I realize our situation's even worse than what I thought. And he's very sober there in chapter 3 of Habakkuk, and it says, the beginning of chapter 3, if you'd like to look at that, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on a 12-string guitar. Actually, it says a shigianoth. But since it's anyone's guess what a Shigianath is, it says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Verse 2, O Lord, renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. So he's praying here. And then we get into this section that I... Now, the first time I read that, I was uh, sort of like, Huh? I I, I wasn't sure uh, what it was talking about. And we want to look at that a little bit tonight. But it says, God came from Teman. Now, maybe this is something you've always been wondering about. Where is God from? Well, there you have it. He's from Teman. <laughs> I'm from Savannah, you know. Where are you from? The Holy One from Mount Perrin, another geographical reference. His glory covered the heavens and His praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise rays flashed from His hand where His power was hidden. Plague went before Him. Pestilence followed His steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Kushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Now I was thinking... Uh, as I was going through this and understanding more about it, what he, I'll, let me just give you the, the short answer and then we'll look at why we think that. Those verses that we just read relate primarily to God's revelation on Mount Sinai. But you think, well, why didn't he just say so? how come it's almost like a music video you've seen these things and it's changing you know about every two seconds and flashing And it's just giving you sort of impressions and it's not really spelling it all out but you kind of figure it out and we have something like that in our own country the star-spangled banner now let's look at our star-spangled banner what's the historical background of this song can somebody tell me the event it was written by francis, scott key. francis scott key was the author Fort McHenry, what what war? The War of 1812 and he's, so it wasn't during the Revolutionary War. Now let's go through just a little bit of it and you see if you could have figured out Fort McHenry, War of 1812, the British, I mean there are a number of key details they just don't mention here. Look at how it just gives sort of images. Oh say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last gleaming. Now think of a foreigner singing this and he says, what, Uh, what are we talking about? Whose broad stripes and bright stars, well that's question whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight what fight or the ramparts we watched whose we were so gallantly streaming and the rocket's red glare good grief things are starting to happen here the bombs bursting in air what a war-mongering song gave proof through the night that our flag was still there whose flag Oh say does that star-spangled banner yet wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. Now that stirs us. Why? Because all those are key words and images, and it almost doesn't even matter that it's the war of 1812. You know, we could sing that at just about any point and apply it to any kind of a battle we're in, and it's still the same kind of an idea. A great nation faces a great challenge and overcomes it, and it just thrills your heart. Well, I would like to propose to you that what we're looking at in Habakkuk chapter 3 is sort of like their star-spangled banner. It's the same kind of a thing where they put in key words, and you're wondering, Henry, why is Henry telling me all of this? But anyway, hopefully we can get to that. But Teman and Mount Paran. does anyone know where they are? Without looking at your back of your Bible... They're down in, uh, to the south, and where, if you go, go where the Dead Sea is, you know, there's the Sea of Galilee, follow the Jordan down. There's the Dead Sea, the bottom of the Dead Sea. That, they think that's where Sodom and Gomorrah was. And you go down a bit further south, and that's the country, what used to be the country of Edom, where Esau's descendants settled. And that's where Mount Paran is, and that's where the city of Teman is. And you think, well, huh? What what is it? Well, that was code for them of saying down south. And if you draw a line from Jerusalem straight through Teman and Mount Paran, you get all the way down. You keep going down, you get down to Mount Sinai. Now, in their mind, and the whole old world's mind, every god was associated with the place. And most often it was a mountain. That's why they had trouble with the Jews worshipping other gods. They would always say that you have been sacrificing on every high place. Well, that's the reason why that was bad. Because every mountain had its own god assigned. And the people of the land, the Canaanites were there. They'd heard how the children of Israel had come across, come out of Egypt and gone down to Sinai, And the image here is, is now their God left Mount Sinai, is coming up with the people, and they're realizing we're in a heap of trouble now. Remember how afraid the inhabitants of the land were before Joshua? And it's because God was on his way up from the south. God came from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. That's sort of a, they don't know what that is, but it's sort of poetic. His glory covered the heavens. His praise filled the earth. Now look at the kind of imagery that has to do with God revealing himself and Mount Sinai. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. They say, God says if anyone even comes through to touch the mountain Sinai, they will die. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. And there was all the imagery of Mount Sinai of the thunder, the lightning, the darkness, the cloud, the strength and awesomeness of God. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled. The age-old hills collapsed. Now, this is code for he was able to come overcome all of the other gods who were on their mountains. When their mountain collapsed, then their god must have been defeated. Otherwise, he wouldn't have let them take away his mountain. Uh, it's the idea of God overcoming all the gods in Canaan. I saw the tents of Cushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. So all of that is related to different ways in which God re- revealed Himself, but primarily at Sinai. Now the second part, this really does relate to what we're talking about. But I, I just—you uh, probably can't see this—and so if you can't, look at it in your Bible. This is verses eight through. 15, and this all relates to the Red Sea. Now, up until now, we haven't seen a single reference to water, right? Let's look at this. It says starting in verse 8, Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. That's a, that's a poetic image of the Red Sea parting. It's like they lifted up their hands to praise the Lord and the children of Israel walked between them. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows. That reminded them of Joshua when he said, "Ask the sun to stand still so that they could finish that battle in taking the land. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness, that would be Pharaoh. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear you pierced his head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding, you trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters." Now, if you're writing things down, uh, because some of you are more into Bible study than others, I'm going to throw you out a few uh, verses to jot down, to look up on your own, because this is not just a guess that that is what these things refer to. These are based on previous scriptures that do the same thing. And so for the first section we looked at, Sinai, uh, the verses 3 through 8, write down this, Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, that's a verse where you see that when it talks about Mount Paran, it's talking about Sinai. And Psalm 18, 7 through 14. Now, Deuteronomy was written a thousand years before Habakkuk. And the second one, Psalm 18... 17 through 14, was written 500 years before Habakkuk. And so he's basically guiding his hymn or song or prayer here according to things that have already been written, like if somebody wrote a new patriotic hymn but did it kind of like the Star Spangled Banner, that would be sort of... But that just shows you that there's a precedent here. And for the Red Sea, Exodus 15... uh, talks about the horse and rider he is cast into the sea and a lot of this imagery about the Red Sea opening you see there in Exodus 15 and then in Psalm 18 Psalm 18, 15 through 19 Psalm 18, 15 through 19 and you can uh, take a look at that and you realize well this sounds just like that and you realize well this was Habakkuk's Bible at the time and that's why he's writing it this way Uh, a good artist and a good poet are subtle. They don't just come out and say, well, this is it. They throw you a little clue here, a little shading here, put in a little mood music over here, because they know when all those things come together in the mind of people that have this kind of a history and background, they're gonna say, oh, wow, that's just so subtle, so beautiful. Uh, the way a good cook will just put a hint of this and a hint of that they don't just dump A1 sauce all over it you know they they know how to do the symphony of the spices on it get it just right get that sauce thickened with no lumps in it can you tell I like to cook so we see two things here now Back to our point. Our point is we're talking about the ways of God. And what I want you to see is how out of passages of Scripture that you may have read and not have viewed in this way, we can begin to discern different truths about who God is and how he is and how he operates. One set of truths we see in the first half of Habakkuk's Star Spangled Banner is the imagery of Sinai, And all the things related in there, in that uh, Habakkuk 3 passage, in that part, have to do with God revealing himself as strong, as mighty, as powerful, as victorious. And then the second half of it, we'll just call the Red Sea, although it also refers to other times where God has won the victory. And those all relate to that God is a saving God. Now, as we look through the passage, we saw these things. And under Revelation, and in this passage, we saw Israel at Sinai. There was lightning, thunder, earthquake. There were the wilderness plagues that showed how holy God was. And there was the giving of the law. All of these things relating to God revealing himself and who he is. And under, as far as the Red Sea, we see in that passage, it talks about the uh, God bringing the victory over over Egypt, over Pharaoh, there are hints about the 10 plagues there and the crossing of the Red Sea, the defeating of the nations when the sun stopped, when they crossed the Jordan. It doesn't only talk about the sea, it also talks about the rivers. And uh, Pharaoh was defeated. Doesn't call him that, but you, that you can tell that's what it's talking about. Now, isn't it, isn't it interesting that both of those areas you see in the life of Moses, You see a Sinai experience in Moses' personal life where he had already been at this place and he had seen the burning bush, God revealing himself. And as a baby, he had already experienced God's salvation, God's deliverance as a baby saved out of the bulrushes. The imagery of Sinai is the imagery of a mountain. Of the Red Sea, it's the, the sea or the water. Under revelation what he's communicating is is that he is that he exists and in salvation he's communicating he delivers. With revelation he is showing us his face. This is who I am. And with the his ways of salvation he's showing us the power of his hand to save. We see revelation also in the creation. And what he did there in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And we see his salvation through the resurrection. That God is not only able to take something from, make something from nothing, but he can also make something that is dead. He can make it alive. It's one thing to have a big factory that can make a brand new car, but it's much more difficult to take a smashed up car that's been burned and make it brand new again. That's resurrection. These two things were the greatest, the Sinai and the Red Sea, his revelation and salvation Uh, are the images of the greatest revelation in the Old Testament. If you would say, well, of everything in the Old Testament, what was the epitome of God revealing himself? Would it be the creation? Well, but there was nobody around at the time, and nothing was written down. It was just kind of carried down in oral tradition. But at Sinai, we had eyewitnesses. Two million people saw God on the mountain. They heard his voice. They saw the lightning and there was the earthquake and the people were so afraid with what they saw. They said, Moses, why don't you go up and talk to God? In case this this is as dangerous an undertaking as it looks. And the greatest deliverance in the Old Testament, if you look at all the different times when God delivered his people, the epitome of his deliverance was the deliverance at the Red Sea. And at Sinai, we see God revealing himself. In the Red Sea, we see God rescuing. And uh, at Sinai, we see God revealing himself as glorious and dangerous because he is holy. And in this uh, Red Sea, we see God revealing, showing that he is powerful and victorious. Now let's take a look real quickly at how is this in the New Testament. You think, okay, we've got these two streams of activity where God is showing us his ways. That he likes to reveal himself to us because if he didn't, we couldn't figure him out. We can't find him. We can look all around for God and we can't find him. Not because he's hiding, he just exists out of our frame of reference. And the only way we can get to know him is if he chooses to reveal himself. That's one of his ways. He is a God who reveals himself. But another one of his ways is he doesn't just say, hi, here I am. He also says, let me help you. He is also a God that one of his ways is the way of salvation, of saving, of rescuing, and of delivering. Now, if we look at those things in the New Testament, trace them down, we see it clearly in the Old Testament. You could give lots of examples of both, where he's revealing and where he's saving. We say, well, how does that cross over into the New Testament? What's the greatest revelation in the New Testament? Christmas. That little baby born in the stable, in the cradle or the rock thing or whatever it was they put him in. At Sinai, his revelation was loud, big, noisy, scary. In the New Testament, it's tiny, quiet, looking weak. You say, wow. But it's still all the same thing. God says, I want you to know who I am. And the closer he gets, the more he looks like Jesus. The greatest salvation in the New Testament, the greatest rescuing that God did was at Easter. Now, in the Old Testament, again, it was big, it was noisy. God was the clear winner on this. In the New Testament, God's great salvation was his little son nailed to a piece of wood and dying, and it looked like a defeat. God really changed his his tactics, and yet his aim was the same, revelation and salvation. One in Bethlehem, his revelation of the Incarnation, and the other at golgotha where he won the atonement and the greatest victory you see it was it looked like a very big victory to cross through the red sea and be saved from pharaoh and the egyptians but they would still die in their sins and go to hell the biggest victory ever won was won on the cross at golgotha through the atonement and second corinthians 318 for the revelation Apart, Second Corinthians three eighteen says, "But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to the other." We're looking at Him. We're gazing at His face, seeing His glory. He's revealed Himself to us, and it's a, making a difference in our lives. And with the salvation side, the Red Sea side, the atonement. Uh, Titus 3:5. Why don't we just look that up? Titus 3:5, right after Timothy. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, and it says, "He saved us, our God and Savior." It says in verse 4, "He saved us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy." He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So Jesus Christ was put to death for us on the cross. But again, notice the contrast. Salvation in the Old Testament, epitomized by the great opening of the Red Sea and the tremendous shout of victory in Exodus 15. He, the horse and rider he has cast into the sea. And after the even greater victory in the New Testament on the cross, everybody thought, we lost the game. And all the disciples hung their head and hid in a room. There was no victory party in the champagne you know, like at the Super Bowl. I mean, he'd won something much bigger than the Super Bowl, but it looked like we'd lost, and yet we'd won. Don't you see this tremendous contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament? And yet, in one sense, God's doing what he's always done. In these two ways of God, he is a revealing God, and he is a saving God. Now, when you think about that, Think back over your life. What have you experienced of Sinai? What has God done in your life to reveal pain, but God sustained you? Sometimes by a verse just leaping off the pages of Scripture and uh, meaning something to you, and sometimes you're just sitting there in church, and all of a sudden, somehow, something gets through to you, and you were never the same since. How has God revealed himself to you? Where has your Sinai been and your Sinai experiences our problem with God's revelation is not that God is trying to hide it's most of the time he doesn't have much of our attention have you ever held a little baby we all love holding little babies and I have noticed something at least when I hold a little baby they never look at me they always look at everybody else and I'm right here with them you know and they're always looking everywhere else and I'm you know say look at me you know I'm holding you And I think that's how too often we've been with God. God, the good shepherd, has been holding us. And we've been looking everywhere else. Oh, yes, we'll glance at God and toss him a few things that we think he likes so that he'll bless us. But he's given us a lot more attention than we've given him. And he knows us a lot better than we know him. But he invites us and says, My dear child, your life will be totally different if you get to know me. Let me reveal myself to you. Let me love you. And the other factor, when you think of God, of the Red Sea, what have you experienced of the Red Sea? What has God delivered you from? What are different situations, whether it be spiritually, materially, relationally, where you really saw the hand of God? Aren't those things precious to you? Don't you see how Habakkuk in a time when he's facing this tremendous crisis and the Babylonians are coming, what does he do? If he just thinks about the future, he's going to be paralyzed. What does he do? He thinks back and he says, I remember your ways, Lord. I remember what kind of a God you are. And even though these terrible things are happening and we're going through tough times, I remember, you are a God who loves to reveal who he is and you love to save. And I don't know what that will mean in this situation. But whatever it means, do it. (laughs) Please. And that's why this is his prayer. He thinks back of how God had revealed himself in many ways and in many times and how God had saved in many ways and many times. And he says, that's the God I serve. And that's the God I call out to for right now because we desperately need you. Now, some of the things we talk about in these weeks, you may not need very much now. The days may come when you really do need them. And God will bring back to your mind thoughts that we've talked about that you will perhaps understand better in that dark, difficult moment when you reach out and all you have to grab onto is him. And he will be enough. He will be enough. Let's look now. We're going to move into our talk for tonight. That was the end of last week. But we want to take now just this one area of his salvation. This is one of his ways. This is one of the things that this is his modus operandi, that if we begin to piece together not just one incident, but the different ways that he goes about saving people and rescuing people, we'll begin to understand, oh, okay, I I think I'm beginning to get an idea of how he is. Like we said last week, you have already done this. When you were a little child, you studied the ways of your parents, and you knew which parent you were more likely to get a positive response for, from on anything you wanted. And that was very important to figure out because you wanted to, the best shot you could get at going over to that friend's house or whatever, and your children have studied you. And it sometimes makes you laugh because you can tell they just know how you are and how they have to be to get you to do what they want you to do. I remember uh, with with my, my children... Well, this was, I guess it was my oldest. And he knew that the quickest way to get a no was to have any sort of a uh, uh, arrogance or rebellious attitude or complaining or anything like that. So he would come, and he, because he knew my ways, he would change his ways. And he would come and say, Oh, Father, he wouldn't say that, but Dad... He says, now, I'm going to ask you something, and, and, and if it doesn't work out, there's no problem at all. I will accept your answer. Uh, I would really like to do this, but it's okay. You know, you just tell me whatever you think I should do. Well, how can you say no to that? I mean, what a dirty trick. But he had learned my ways. How? Because in any one instance, no, he'd, draw, he'd connected the dots, And what we want to learn to do as we get to know God is we want to learn to connect the dots. Lord, who are you? How are you? Show me your ways. I don't want to just see the individual bushes or the hedge. I want to get the big picture. I want to know you and so I can be more pleasing to you. A few verses. Let me just give you a couple of verses on this area of salvation. Jeremiah 17, 14, you can just jot those down. I'll read them to you, but if you're taking notes, you might want to just jot them down. Jeremiah 17, 14 says, Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, and I will be saved. You save me, Lord, and I'll be saved. For you are the one I praise. This idea of salvation goes through the whole Bible from start to finish. It's all about God saving us in many ways. Zephaniah 17.3 some of you sing this one it's such a good one Zephaniah 17.3 the Lord your God is with you he is mighty to save now the actual Hebrew there is gibor and then it's got a word for um, Yeshua or salvation gibor is the word for hero champion it's the word used for David's mighty men it's a warrior so it says the Lord your God is with you He's your hero, your champion, your mighty man. He is your warrior who is able to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. That's the kind of God we serve. Now we go to the New Testament, Matthew one twenty one. God is sending Jesus in the form of a man, in the form of a baby initially. And in Matthew 1.21, it says, She will give birth to a son, and you're going to give him a name. Now, let's think of the names they could have given. The Holy Lamb of God. They could have said, well, just call him Lamb. Lamb chop or something. Just call him Holy. Come here, Holy. They could have called him powerful, great, mighty, kind. Maybe they should have just called him love, like the British do. Hey, love but what is the name of all the names God could have picked he says you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins it was the Aramaic for the Hebrew Joshua Jehovah saves he says more than anything else when I come to show you who I am he says that pretty much sums it up that's who I am I am salvation. And so Jesus growing up, they say, has anyone seen salvation? I mean, we just think Jesus and and Joshua, those are just names to us. That's like Charlie or Chuck or something like that. But it was in their language, just like we use words, we use names like hope and joy and things like that. Well, they had one for salvation. I've never met a young man named Salvation before, but... That's what the angel said. This is what his name's got to be. Not love, not resurrection, not power, not holy. Jesus. Salvation. And we realize, man, I don't know what it means, but this must be really important. God really is emphasizing this. And then in Romans 10, 13, Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Magnificent promise. Write it on your wall. Put it in your car. Every time you brush your teeth, have a little card there. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved because there are many times we are in deep trouble. Isn't that true? As an individual, as a couple, as a family, as a city, as a nation, as a world, we could make a long list of things that aren't going the way they ought to go and we can't do much about it and look at that promise everyone not some everyone you mean everyone? everyone you say it everyone say it one more time everyone do you think he lied? no everyone who calls on the name of the Lord oh is this difficult? is this like doing logarithms? no anybody can do this just call on the name of the Lord this is not hard you can do this I remember one time, Walt, when he was two, was climbing off of this kind of uh, structure we'd built out of a packing crate. In in Argentina, we just made a little playground out of it. We were sort of desperate, (laughs) and uh, and he was climbing down, and it was right pushed up against the close to the wall, and he got down about halfway, and he couldn't go down or up. Now no one was in there, but Wendy heard a sound in the room. She was in the kitchen. And she heard him calling out, "Help me, Jesus! I'm stuck." He couldn't say stuck. And since he called Jesus, she didn't go in. But he came out a little while later and realized, "Well, Jesus must have helped him." But but you see, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What a wonderful promise! What a wonderful promise! Now, let's move ahead just a little bit. I want to look at two verses as we think about, well, God's way is salvation. How did that intersect with the life of Jesus and his mission and ministry? We get to John 12. Why don't we look that up in your Bible? John chapter 12. That's a nice big one. You can find that quick. I can too. John chapter 12. Now, this is the just before the Last Supper, starting in John 13. This is at the end of of the last week that holy week and in John twelve twenty seven, Jesus already has a pretty good idea of what is coming upon him and in verse 27 he says now my heart is troubled and what shall I say Father, save me from this hour he knew the promise everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved but you see there was a dilemma here If he was saved, we wouldn't be. And he says, well, what shall I say? I don't want to go through this. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. He said, I came to this hour not to be saved, so that they could. So what... How does he phrase his prayer then? He's not going to pray, Father, save me. What does he say? Father, glorify thy name. Well, that sounds really good, doesn't it? But the way the Father was going to glorify his name was to have his little boy beat up, bloodied, dragged around, spit upon, and nailed to a cross to hang there like a piece of meat for a number of hours and be jeered at and mocked And forsaken, and die. Father, glorify Thy name. And He knew what that meant. A good ending, but a very difficult process. And when He was on the cross, in Matthew 27, I'll just read this, but write it down. Matthew 27:42. Listen to what the people were yelling at him. Matthew twenty-seven forty-two. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Don't you know that's done? But like a lamb led to the slaughter, he did not open his mouth. And that shows us how much of a savior God is because no matter what it cost, he was willing to pay it that he might save us, even if it meant not saving his own son. He is a God of salvation. Now, when we think of God saving us, we tend to just think of that moment of conversion where you were born again, where you asked Christ into your life, where you are. oh yes, I know all about that. Are you saved? Yes, I'm saved. Salvation is a much huger concept than that. That's just one aspect of it. And if you had any idea how many times that God had saved you, every day, there are a lot of things he doesn't trouble us with the details. He has his angels, his messengers of flaming fire. There are thousands of accidents you could have gotten into that you didn't. Millions of diseases you could have gotten, and he headed off at the pass. So many different heartaches and things that could have happened that Satan would have loved to have done. God protecting you quietly, silently, and not even not even have, ever having it come to the light. We'll find out later. And we'll look at each day and we'll realize, man, every day we kept you really busy, Lord. Look at all of these things. Wow, look at that. Right around the corner, I didn't even realize. Look at this thing, that thing. All I realized was the few things that you did in your perfect love allow that were eventually for good. And I was so bummed out about those things and I thought, this is so ridiculous what Henry's talking about. He's the saving God. I can name you a hundred things where to me, he failed me. He let me down. There's so many things he hasn't told you that he has saved you from. We only know the tip of the iceberg. We'll find out about the other 99% in heaven someday now obviously our idea of salvation is sometimes different from his idea of salvation you might tell your children ah daddy's just here to help you well then why are you holding that rod (laughs) that doesn't look like help to me I would rather you offer me a nice peanut butter and jelly sandwich with chocolate pie and you're coming to talk to me sternly and give me a spanking That doesn't look like help to me. Oh, but it is. Dear child, this is the vaccine against prison. (laughs) A tiny little bit of pain, and maybe you'll learn to respect authority, and it's going to come in handy, because your boss someday is going to be much worse than me. But our idea of salvation often differs from his. Look at... The salvation Habakkuk was praying for. Lord, our situation, our country is falling apart. Immorality, uh, vice and greed. Save us. And God says, okay, I'll save you. Babylonians, it's time. Come in and wipe them out. That's not saving us. He says, well, it is. uh, Eventually you'll see. You won't. But uh, it will be seen that that finally cured the people of God from idolatry. Never again after the fall of Jerusalem, the 70 years in captivity, never again for 2,500 years have the Jews had a problem with the idolatry they had a problem with before. It was a big spanking, but it worked. They have been staunchly monotheistic now for 2,500 years. God knew what he was doing. It was not just a punishment. It was a corrective action. And there are times when you will have a sickness that is so severe, you think that doctor is trying to kill you because of the type of treatment that it will take to treat what you've got. But you have to trust that doctor and you can always sue him afterwards if it doesn't. No, I'm just saying. Don't sue doctors. They're doing the best they can. The disciples wanted the, ki- wanted the kingdom of God to come. He said, at this time, you're going to restore the kingdom. And Jesus ended up going to the cross. He says, well, we missed, missed him on that one. I, what, what happened? Paul had that thorn in the flesh, and he would have thought salvation was take the thorn out. And God says, salvation for you is leaving the thorn in, because the alternative is worse. You'll be too proud. In Hebrews 11, it says, By faith they conquered kingdoms, shut the mouths of lions. That's the kind of victory I want. That's the kind of salvation I want. And he says, well, also there were those that were beaten and sown in two, and they also got the victory. He says, I don't like that kind of victory. You know, I, was, I kind of like the kind where they close, close the mouths of the lions and things like that. He says it's all victory because of what God is doing. As we close... There are different ways that you might apply this. I want to mention, write down Exodus 14 because that's what we're going to look at next week. And it's really going to be good, believe me. (laughs) But for tonight, as we close on this concept of the Lord's ways of salvation, it could be that this intersects with you tonight just because of your need to know the Lord, to ask him into your heart, to become a Christian to let him begin to save you from yourself. It might be intersecting with you because you have inner giants and you have a tremendous inner struggle going on. Your outside world has problems, but your biggest problem is that thing that's going on inside of you of fear, lust, insecurity, of a particular addictive thought or behavior. And you're thinking, what can I do? And you've tried and you've prayed. Keep calling out. The Bible says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Claim that till the day you die. God will give me the victory. It may be that you're in a circumstantial crisis economically, in your job, something. It's not inside you, but it's right around you, and it is just so difficult. Your marriage, a situation with your child, your brother maybe you've got a child in the wall whatever it is there's a circumstantial issue in your life that you have you walk around with it it's always there keep talking to God about it remind God Lord you are a God of salvation and you said everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved save me or finally we will all need this one day when we are facing death that little dip in the road on our way to glory because that is our biggest, has been our biggest foe, our biggest dread. And he says, I want you to know I came to save you. And that includes in those final exams to give you the strength to go right up to that moment and to pass through that little dip and then it'll all be done. It's like when you go in for certain treatments and you're, th- you're really dreading this because it's a, it's a rough treatment. They say, no problem. Breathe in the gas. You'll wake up. You'll be fine. And sure enough, And someday, I think, that last moment will be like that for those that have learned to take his hand, walk with him, and trust him. Let's close with a word of prayer. We bless you, Lord. God of revelation, God of salvation, teach us to know your ways, teach us to trust you, to love you, to admire you, to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. (music) Thanks for joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast.